Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. This evening, I'm sat with Tom Venner, Managing Director of the Euston Partnership, responsible for the multi-billion pounds worth of investment into this transformational infrastructure and real estate change at Euston. Now, this role he gained after spending three and a half years as the Commercial Development Director for HS2, where Tom was responsible for 3.4 million square metres of development pipeline around the eight stations and a property portfolio with a GDP of £5 billion along that HS2 route. Now, Prior to joining HS2, Tom cut his teeth at Land Securities across both their retail and London portfolios. So Tom, thank you very much for joining me. Nice to see you, Nick. So we start off always the same way. You kick us off. How does chapter one begin? Well, in many ways, it's terribly predictable. Uh, A slightly spotty teenager living with his parents up in Manchester with absolutely no clue as what to do. And I think in, in those days, as I think it is now... Uh, all the advice was to do some work experience. And I spent many a happy and actually many an unhappy week in places uh, shadowing people and learning what they did. But there was a very special moment. Uh, and I remember it particularly, not least because the person who had kindly given me a week of their time was called Jerry. So I was surrounded by Tom and Jerry jokes for a whole week <laughs> was that I shadowed um, this chap, Jerry who was um, working in property for the Diocese of Manchester up in the northwest of England. And he was covering a whole range of things from uh, residential to retail, uh, and even down to the detail of sort of changing people's kitchen. And every every day was different. Every day we were doing something different. I was with him for five days, and we were travelling across the northwest, looking at different types of property, doing very different things, and meeting a whole lot of different people. And it just clicked. From that moment, I, I was absolutely clear that this was what I wanted to do, but not the first idea of how to do it. And, and I remember sitting in, in my sort of sixth form library, going through the many UCAS books, as, as I'm sure lots of your listeners have done, and thinking, OK, I've got this idea. This is sort of something I, I think I'd quite like to do. And what do, how do I make it a reality? And I scrolled through and the great thing was that it it, it popped out of me pretty clearly that this was a vocational course and if you wanted to do it, there were a number of different routes and it didn't mean you have to go to university, but university was was one route and I was really clear that was what I I wanted to do. So it all became about sort of the where, the how uh, and, and the what and it's something that's been a thread through all of my career is that I've asked people for help and... Uh, I, had a, I was very lucky. I had an uncle who was a surveyor working in uh, in the Midlands, and he said, "Well, in front of me, these choices. You've got really two choices. You've got Reading, and you've got everywhere else." And uh, and so so I went and I, I looked at Reading and I looked at Sheffield, but but Reading was where I wanted to go. And luckily for me, in those days, you didn't have to get straight A's or A stars to get into Reading, and, and I and I made it just. Um, and I had a brilliant time, and uh, and I learned through a land management course there about the basics of being a surveyor. I didn't recognise the time, Nick, but I was surrounded firstly by people who would be my peer group and continue to be my peer group in the industry and have helped me with my career. 
but I was also surrounded by some pretty awesome academics who were at the the top of their game and gave some really, really good advice uh, as, as to how to proceed with one's career. So there was a mixture, really. In my first chapter of my career was that I was very lucky to be able to discern that this was something that I wanted to do. And I was lucky that I had some people who could guide me on to how to go about it. But as I'm sure, yeah, as I'm sure your listeners who have passed through the university system knows that it's, uh, it's, it's a brilliant at the time, but your, your eye is always on the next step and the first job. And in that step and sort of towards the end of my first, my first chapter, if you like, Nick, I, this is when Lady Luck really played a part. Because like all of my friends and peers at Reading, I had tried to line up more work experience through my summer holidays to try and earn a few quid if I could uh, to spend when I got back to university. And my, um, my first uh, big job uh, uh, whilst I was at university fell through. And I got super lucky as a friend of mine at university pieced together that uh, his dad was looking for somebody to support him over the summer and wouldn't it be a good connection. And that connection with his dad made a friend. I did my hard work. I did a summer, which led me to my first job. And so a lot of this, I think, my, of my first chapter has been about talking to people, asking for help, asking the right questions, asking which way to go. And I was very lucky from 16 to find a path that took me through to my first job at Montague Evans. Well, I, th- I think it's a, um, it's a really important lesson, isn't it, for anyone listening to this who's in sort of early parts of their career, you know, just to put their minds at ease. Yeah. Did asking questions of anyone at that stage ever get you in trouble? Never. No. I think it's I think it's frightening now. If you look at the, uh, there isn't such a thing as an UCAS handbook as there was then, and it's now all online. It is simply frightening the number of variations and deviations of different courses that you can do. Having somebody to ask the simple questions of is is really powerful. And so it's never got me in trouble. It's only it's it's only ever helped. And if it you know, if it puts the, those youngsters in a sort of mind at ease, you know, sort of people like yourself and I we quite like being asked, don't we? It's a, um, it does our ego sort of a, um, uh, a bit of a polish as well. So uh, if you are listening to this and you are in that sort of stage, you know, don't don't hesitate to reach out and uh, and just ask ask away. We re- you know, we really don't mind as much as you might think we would. Absolutely. Um, so tell us a bit more then. What sort of what happens after sort of university uh, and sort of what do you find yourself doing? So I was, uh, I was, as I said, I was really lucky and I found my way and I was offered a job with Montague Evans. And for those of you who don't know Montague Evans, it's a, it's a fantastic business, a fantastic partnership. And there aren't many of those left. But I got to shadow a, a fabulous guy called John Pagella, who taught me, I think, the rudiments of two things. Firstly, was and I was doing sort of called valuation, portfolio valuations, doing landlord and tenant. And the first one was, was really learning the basics, learning the basics solidly and doing it right, doing the basics right of a good report and, uh, and being diligent and attention to detail. Um, and the second thing was about building a relationship with a client. Uh, John was a master at this and uh, building really strong relationships with clients that endured for decades, if not years, um, and investing in those, investing in those relationships as, as an advisor. And so I had I had two years of doing sort of bare knuckle valuation, portfolio valuation and landlord and tenant and also compulsory purchase. And, and, and some of your uh, listeners might immediately reach for the off button. But before you do, uh, listeners, it was an absolutely brilliant way 
to learn about acquisition, about transactions, about doing deals, but also about the front end of property development, about putting sites together, uh, about making it viable, about making a case to buy land. And I had two happy years of doing that for some pretty big clients. They got me in front of some sort of pretty important people doing some pretty exciting stuff. Um, and it was a massive learning curve. Um, and all of that at the same time trying to get through the APC. And for, for anybody who's at the beginning of their career, um, there's huge value, I think. And I still come back to it in learning the basics really solidly and really well and learning for somebody who's been there and done it. So it was it was two challenging and brilliant years at, at Montague Evans where I came out with my chartership. Uh, and at, th- at that point, you know, to a recruiter, certainly you're, um, uh, you're sort of fresh meat, aren't you? Just qualified, you're whatever sort of recruiter that, uh, ever sort of wants. So that's that's when typically they get flooded with invites about, right, now you're qualified, where where can we send you to? Uh, and and who, who was it you joined after, after Montes? Well, I, I did a, a I did a terrible thing, and I and I, I left very quickly after my APC. But I have no regrets in doing that. And, and what drove me to do that, Nick, was well, firstly, after university, as I said, I had a, a peer group of friends who'd all scattered across the country, working for for different firms, doing different things. Some went client side, some went to consultancy side, and of course, we kept in touch. And that was really powerful, and still is still is now. And. I got a call as a few of us after we'd passed our APC and said, well, what are we going to do now? And, you know, the, a question that I keep on coming back to time and time and time again in my career is, what do I enjoy doing? And again, let the groans start. But the thing that I loved doing was the compulsory purchase, to doing the site acquisition, to doing the, the, the trading of sites. And an opportunity came up at Drivers Jonas. And for those of you who don't know that, that's sort of now subsumed into Deloitte, to work for a team that... I think were generally regarded as being really, really fantastic. Dare I say, at the top of their game, and they were working on the Olympic sites, and uh, they were doing some really big land acquisition for High Speed One. And so it was an opportunity to to go and do the same thing, but more specialised. Uh, the thing that I really enjoyed doing, and so it was a really easy move, it was a really easy transition from one really great partnership to another but taking on some more responsibility, taking on owning some client relationships and, and, and sort of growing as a consultant. Um, so I spent very, very happy three years there. Now, sort of given, to, um, I bang on about it all, all the time, about these sort of these three re-recurring sort of events throughout sort of, um, people's careers about accelerations made up of lots and lots of lessons learned. And then there's a period of, of consolidation whereby you're putting this into, into place and then there becomes a spark about you know, what, what happens then thereafter. In in that time, so particularly with sort of drivers journalists at Deloitte, you know, what do you think you were particularly sort of honing as regards to sort of your career skills? What what were you particularly sort of developing that, uh, that you think now looking back has sort of um, held you in sort of good stead? Well, it was all about the client relationships, and so I was really lucky to be working on a scheme. Uh, known as Cabot Circus in Bristol. It was jointly owned by Land Securities and Hammerson, a big um, regional shopping centre, Cabot Circus. And I was in it in, in, in sort of as, as it began and the site was being put together. And all through the public inquiry, the land acquisition, I built a day-to-day working relationship with the development directors who were responsible at, at Hammerson and Land Securities. And the big thing I learned 
uh, and it's stuck with me always with the consultants that now work uh, with me, is that as the client, they wanted to know what was my opinion about what was going to happen. Not what sort of other people might say or what the textbook says, but what's your gut feel? What's your professional judgment? And to trust professional judgment and trust yourself to be able to share it. And and to also to work with the client and say, well, what exactly is it you need to be able to do your job? And I think some, through my, my years at Jive as Janus, we I really honed that ability to sort of understand what the client wanted and to respond to it. And I think that's something, again, that I sort of try to do now in, in, these, in my current role is to listen and to respond. Um, and sometimes we churn out the same old thing without listening to what actually people want. And that's, that stood me in good stead because I built that relationship with the client and they began to see, I think, that I understood about what it was to be the client and what it was to be instructing consultants to do work rather than just to be the consultant, just, just, to, to, just, just to understand it from the consultant's perspective. So seeing things from a separate perspective, seeing things from your client's perspective, I think is, is really important for any, any, anybody on consultancy side. So just picking up something um, that you mentioned there, for anyone now who's working in a, um, in consultancy at the moment, and I, I don't I don't know how big sort of um, DJs was at, at that time, but presumably at, at this stage of their career, sort of anything between sort of three to sort of six years in, they're they're still pretty hidden from client view, aren't they? They're under quite a few different layers of sort of management um, uh, as well. As a client now, what advice would you give someone? there that might enable them to to develop that relationship with with their um, with their customer with the with those clients well i think that i was very lucky that through my time at monty's and at drivers jonas that the partners and the people that i were reporting to were not overbearing and controlling and sort of saved the client relationships from themselves i think they recognized that clients they want to talk to the people who are doing the work, not the people who are just winning the work. And so I, I was very lucky. I was sort of pushed to have direct client relationships and to, to build my own and direct relationship with the client. But I, but I hear it. And I think if for those who are listening, who may be in consultancy, who may think that they want to work on the client side instead, I would encourage them to, to reach out to talk to the client and say, look, I want to understand what it is you do. How do you do it? How can I be a better consultant to you? Tell me what it is that you're driving to succeed, to do, so that I can help you do that. Because fundamentally, that's what everybody wants, to help other people to succeed. So the client wants the consultant to help them succeed, and the consultant wants their client to succeed so that they can succeed and do more work. It's, it's mutually beneficial. And you know, like you said earlier, you know, the older you get, the more you like and feel comfortable with people coming to you and asking for advice. And this is another classic example where I think if you are in that situation, working consultancy and you want to explore a client side role, talk to somebody who's in it, understand what it's about and what makes them tick. That's very solid advice. Um, Now, going back to my, my original sort of themes about this acceleration, consolidation, and then spark, Looking back with hindsight now, you know, sort of a, this is in the years sort of 2006 to sort of 2007 with DJs. Yep. Do, do you remember feeling like you're in a period of consolidation? Did you remember feeling quite comfy? I remember feeling very acutely that I was at a fork in the road. And I'll, I'll come back to this, this sort of sense of a fork in the road 
probably again, if you'll forgive me. And I felt very strongly that I had uh, two choices in front of me. The first was um, that I would, if you like, consolidate myself in what I was enjoying and I was doing. And so I would, you know, I was increasingly, I was spending nearly all my time doing compulsory purchase work. I was really enjoying it. I had a really great team of really nice people around me. And I felt like I could easily consolidate. But I also had this feeling that I was not seeing the whole picture, that I was, I was part of a process. I was a piece of a jigsaw, to use yet another metaphor, and that actually I didn't really have a perspective, the whole perspective and that perhaps I was limiting myself and I wanted to, I wanted to see the fuller perspective. So that was, that was a critical point for me where I thought, actually, I've, is there something, is there something bigger? Yeah, I know I'm, I'm, I'm in this sort of site acquisition side, but when I finish buying a site for this shopping center, I'm going to hand it over to somebody else and then they're going to do a load of stuff with it. And I don't really understand what it is they're going to do and how they're going to do it, but and at the end of it, there's going to be a shopping centre. And that's huge. That's absolutely massive. And I had two, two, great, two great clients, uh, Rob Hancock and, and Phil Vaughan, one at Lansac and one at Hammerson. And they were really great with me when I asked them what many people I thought were probably pretty stupid questions about what happens next, what, what is this process, what goes into this process. And it was through those conversations that I remember saying to Rob and Phil, actually, I think... I'm really interested in following this through into, into becoming part of this bigger process rather than just do my segment, my piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And it was, it felt like a really brave move at the time to move out of a comfort zone where I knew that my skills were needed. I knew that they were wanted. I had a great team and all that sort of stuff, but could I sort of step out of my comfort zone? So for me, Nick, it was more of a, this is a fork in the road. I could choose to consolidate or I could can choose to, I could choose to stretch myself and, I decided that I'd go for it and stretch myself. Which, which I think sort of, you know, to those uh, people who've been sort of listening from, um, from the very start of these, these pods and things, this will sound very familiar. They're, they're, the, the people who I, who I sort of invite on this pod, the people who I talk to day in, day out, who have had these very successful careers, you know, will typically be presented with often quite binary decisions. You know, stay, stay on a safe road um, uh, or alternatively put something at, at risk and, and take that leap and, more often than not, they take they take the risk and they uh, uh, they make that leap. So tell us what was what was the leap? What happened after after this? So so the leap so the leap was uh, talking to my clients was well if you're serious, come and do it. And and I think my my choice was then you know, to work with it was a very lovely choice to make to work with 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 Hammerson on Ansec. And I then that was a point where I just had to rely on instinct sometimes you do have to take a leap and say look I've, I've made this mental leap that i'm going to go out of my safe swim lane with my friends my colleagues and the job that i know i can do and i'm going to try something different and what's important to me now or what's important to me now is to do it with people that i instinctively feel comfortable and trust and i met um, a lot of this I keep coming back to is sort of a meeting people and met this person and that person. But people, I think, in this industry count for a huge amount. And in this career move, it felt like a giant leap. I don't think in hindsight it was, but it felt like a giant leap. And to make it a more comfortable leap, what drove me, what, what drove me to what drew me to Lansac was actually the people there. 
And so I met a few people. I particularly met a guy called Peter Cleary, late and great Peter Cleary, who was running the development team. And he just made it so warm and welcoming and we value your experience. We know what you can do and we're going to help you grow. We know you're not the finished product. We know you can't do everything, but we're going to help you become a development manager and learn how to do this. And to come into an organisation where, if it sounds dramatic to say that they're accepting of your faults, they're accepting of the things that you can't do from the outset. You're not the finished product, product, but they will develop you and support you in that. I was sold. Uh, and so I, I started at Landsec uh, in the retail business and I started there uh, just before the financial crisis, which was shockingly bad timing. But it's still one of the best career moves I've ever made. Well, let's get into it then. Tell, tell us a bit more about what you're involved in. So, I, so as I said, I landed at Landsec at the beginning of 2007 and uh, the financial crisis hadn't yet hit. But um, I worked for a guy called Nick Davis who, who took me under his wing and almost gave me a proposition. And in those days, as I think partly they are now, Land Securities had a pretty diverse retail portfolio. So they had in the big and the shiny, the bull rings of this world, but they also had the smaller and perhaps the less shiny. And uh, what Nick proposed, and, and I did for the next two years, was I, I shadowed him. I was very much his second chair on a big job, uh, Buchanan Galleries up in Glasgow. It was a one and a half million square foot joint uh, venture with Henderson. Exposed me to some really nasty complex. It was my first exposure to development around transport infrastructure, a bus station and a train station, that example, really complicated, really difficult, massive sums of money, complicated relationships and a JV as well. And I was very much Nick's second chair. But he let me take a lead at a, at a redevelopment in Liverpool at the St John's Shopping Centre, and which was a much, much smaller gig, much less risky, um, easier sort of line of sight on, the, on, on how the development would be delivered. And he was almost supported me in that while I supported him in, in, in the big one in Glasgow. And through that, I reflecting on this before we're our, our chat, Nick, I think I, I got an opportunity to watch a seasoned expert operate. But I had the chance to go and do it myself with him sort of nudging the tiller to make sure I didn't crash the metaphorical boat. And I think the last thing in this period of things that, that I think were sort of a career turning point for me I suppose is that I mentioned Peter Cleary who was head of development and we had a really bad setback in Liverpool I think it was and he, he pulled Nick and I into the room and just said look if development was easy everyone would do it and it's not it's hard it's about taking the knocks about picking yourself up and carrying on going and I know it might sound trite and yet more of your listeners switch off but it is true and I think the 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 nature of the industry that we work in is it's cyclical and sometimes things work and sometimes they don't planning is difficult sometimes you get it sometimes you don't and to succeed in this industry, I think you have to just be accepting of those, those things that don't go your way, learn from them and move on. And, and that's something that, that was positively encouraged at Landsec. And I'm, I'm really grateful for it. Well, that, that sort of segue then, I just want to bring something in. So, um, you know, we sort of like to do our, our research in the pod. And so I spoke to a couple of different people who know, who know you quite well. And there was, there was one word that came up in, in both conversations, and that was confidence. And so sort of paraphrasing some what, what I collected, you know, they, they talked about you having a lot of confidence, confidence in your own decisions, confidence uh, in yourself, but also a, an ability to inspire confidence in the people around you. Now, that, that second part of that, I'll, I'll, I want to come back to a bit later on. But at this stage, 
Do you remember feeling confident? Do you remember that that being a, a particular trait of yours? No, 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 absolutely. And, and in fact, I, I, I got burnt in my early days. We did then, as we all do now, the sort of 360 feedback and, and people give you, you know, your peers as well as people who work for you and work sort of who you report to gave you feedback. And I remember getting this feedback and saying, oh, well, yes, well, people I work for, they all think I'm rather good. And, but the people who are sort of working for me were rather negative. And the thing that struck with me is, and there's a, there's a point to this story, so bear with me, was they said, well, he's, he's far too quick to come to his own conclusions and doesn't listen to the voices of experts. And you know what? They're absolutely right. And in those early days that I was very keen to appear confident, to appear assertive as confidence was important. And I think it was even within the first six months, this, 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 this review came through and I realised that the, if to be confident, I had to have good people working with me and I had to listen to their advice. And it's not good enough for them to sit in the office and be there, but you actually had to listen to their advice and respond to it. And so I think from there, I did gain confidence. I gained confidence on the first part in myself because I knew I was surrounded by good people who knew their stuff. And if you're surrounded by experts, that's, it's, there's, there's nothing more empowering. And secondly, the second bit of inspiring confidence in others is that I realised the value of having really good people, whether they're good consultants or they work for you directly around you. And if they're good, you, you can't help be good because the people around you are good. So, yeah, I learned a lot in that time. Okay, interesting. Well, let's um, uh, let's carry on. Yeah, we've 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 almost managed to avoid sort of mentioning the GFC. Um, <laughs> now, obviously, that I know that sort of plays a part um, in everyone's sort of careers around this sort of time. But you managed to uh, weather that storm, stay within sort of Landsec. So, um, what's what's happening sort of two thousand eight and, and onwards now for you? It, 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 look, I think for like for lots of people who who were working uh, at that point, it was brutal. And, you know, at Land Securities, it was no exception. It was a very, very difficult period for the business and the development, retail development business shrunk overnight. Where, again, I think I was lucky is I was asked to go and become an asset manager. And I had no intention, no desire to become an asset manager. I didn't know where to start. But you know, the writing was on the wall that actually there wasn't going to be any development activity. But there was some really exciting going on, stuff going on with empty shopping centres up and down the country that needed some love and attention. And that led to, I think, probably some of the happiest time in my career of working really hard in Lewisham and Corby and Worcester and places in Stratford and places around the country to let up empty shops, get some planning consents, do some rough and dirty asset management uh, and then sell some assets. And I yeah, I have to say, Nick, for, for anybody who, who is an aspiring property developer, I would encourage you to understand asset management, to, to be there with the completed assets, to engage with tenants, to, to engage with those customers and to really understand what the product is that a developer is trying to create. Because there was so much to learn from being a retail asset manager and doing those difficult deals and engaging with retailers and office occupiers and uh, that that. Almost I wish I'd gone back to retail development to then play out a lot of the things I'd learned. But there were, um, there were certainly a huge amount to learn from, from tenants, what they expect, what occupiers want from real estate. And I think sometimes 
we we forget that ultimately that's what we're doing is we're creating spaces for people we're creating spaces for business and if we lose or if we disconnect ourselves from the people who are going to live in the houses that we build or the offices that we build or the industrial units that whatever whatever that was happening with them that we actually lose sight of what it is to be in real estate so so it was an incredibly important time for me it was a leap of faith because i genuinely didn't want to do it um but it was something that I felt like uh, I possibly had to do. But actually, in, in hindsight, it was it was brilliant. So, Tom, you've been you've been really sort of frank, really really honest about sort of you know what what you didn't know and the lessons you've you've had to learn and the, the the benefit now you've had from looking at sort of a variety of different roles within Landsec. But once more, you know, looking backwards from our position now, we know that sort of your your time at Lancet sort of culminated in, in taking on quite a senior uh, role as development director, as a leadership sort of role within that sort of central London portfolio. So we know you've managed to sort of convert all those those lessons and, and put those uh, in in somewhere to, obviously to a um, uh, uh, to really really good use. But how easy a transition was that for you? The, tra- the next transition was really hard. So moving from retail into London, but also into a more senior role meant that I was changing sectors. So I was going from retail to offices and sort of high-end residential. I was moving into a different team with a different culture and also taking on some line management responsibilities and never underestimate the, uh, the, the challenge that line management can be. It's a great pleasure, but it's a real challenge too. And I think my, my retrospect on those is that there was, if anything, there was too many things changing at once. Change of location, change of sector and additional responsibilities of line management. It was a rough time to come to terms with those things. But it was a really steep learning curve and it had to be. So I then had a very happy uh, remaining of my time, another four or five years uh, in the London development team. Sort of, if you like, learning the skills of, of managing a small team of, of peers and really well, uh, sort of well qualified and really, really capable individuals. So that was it. the learning curve for me then, that final sense was about managing people and inspiring a team. Uh, I said I was going to come back to it. And so now, now's maybe quite a good sort of um, moment to do so. Going back to sort of the research, though, um, several sort of people mentioned about sort of how you had that ability to inspire confidence in the people around you. Within, within the Landsec environment, how did you manage to do that? What, what sort of tools or sort of um, uh, abilities did you need to put into place in order to get people to follow your lead? Landsec is an exceedingly inspiring place to work. You're working on some absolutely fantastic kit and you are working with some, with some of the best consultants and the best in-house teams as you possibly can. And I, I felt that focusing people on the quality of what we were delivering and the reality and the scale of what we were delivering was inspiring to people. And we inspired not only the people who may have been in the organisation a long time to get, we, we were delivering Victoria this time and, and I was doing my, my part in that. And it was massive. It's transformative to what uh, Landsec achieved down in Victoria. And to get a sense of uh, empowerment, we're doing something really amazing here, however small your part, I think was powerful and it inspired new people to join. And I think that as the, as the business grew and we were delivering all this stuff, it was pretty difficult not to be empowered, to be inspired. Um, but I think if I have one thing, it's again, it's reminding people of the great stuff that everybody's doing to deliver this single great outcome of uh, of a really a new place, a new piece of city down in Victoria. Well, let's let's now sort of um, look at what happens post Lancet. 
because the, the your rate of sort of progression, the rate of sort of the sort of your own sort of development, this doesn't wane, does it? If anything, this is this is <laughs> get, this is getting steeper as you get further into your career. Tell us a, uh, a little bit more, as maybe as a as a sort of an introduction as to what what was happening in these latter years at Landsec that made you want to consider something different. Uh, I absolutely got the bug of working with people and if you're like leading a leading a team and seeing the things that could be done when a, when a when a team works together and in those last couple of years at Lancet we had a real focus on delivery and so having I'd seen things through planning and the land acquisition and planning and we're actually delivering you know we're handing over residential units to buyers we're handing over we're leasing and handing over office space and we're selling big parcels of residential land and the, the rate of activity was incredibly high. And I had a, a fantastic coach. And for those of you who have the benefit of having a fantastic coach, it really is a gift. Um, we had a number of conversations about, well, what, what is the exciting? What, is the, what is, the, is, is the happy place? What are the things that really you really enjoy? And that delivery, that creativity was brilliant. And I, I felt like there were going to be other opportunities there, there would potentially be other opportunities either elsewhere in Lansac or elsewhere in, in another organisation where I might be challenged even more. You know, I might be challenged to, to build a team, to develop a team, to, to go into new products that I hadn't, uh, or areas of the, of the market that I hadn't experienced before. And that's why my mind started to, to really challenge myself as what is, again, going back to it, what is it I enjoy? What is it I want to do? Uh, in advance of, you know, when I came to the end of my time at Lansac, I had a really clear idea in my mind what it is I wanted and what it is I wanted to do next. Well, I don't want to bury the lead. You, t- you tell me what, ha- what happens next. <laughs> well, uh, so, so I, I was very clear at the end of my time at Lansec that I want, really wanted two challenges. I wanted to challenge myself to work in, a, it, it, in property, but in a, not a purely property environment. I was surrounded by property experts at Lansec and everybody knew what an IRR was uh, and I didn't have to explain that. I wanted to go and go do that. I wanted to go work in a non-property environment. I also wanted to work in a place where there may be different or other challenges other than like shareholder returns. So, so I was drawn to working in a non-property organisation, but working in property, uh, exploring all sorts of opportunities. And, and when the opportunity at High Speed 2 came along, everything aligned. And, and those things really were, there was an opportunity to build a team from nothing. It was me and a PA to start off with, uh, with a mandate to, to, build a, to build a team and to build a culture around that team. Uh, the second is, is that for those of you who, who don't know, High Speed 2 as a railway line is, is uh, in the first phase from Birmingham to London, but then latterly from Manchester um, and hopefully one day from Leeds to London. The, the scale of the opportunity to redevelop the surplus land around those places is absolutely mind-boggling. And as you said in your introduction, you know, it's at 34 million square feet. It's absolutely enormous. It's going to run to tens of thousands of homes. And these are developments that are going to transform cities. And, uh, and, and this was also in a context where it's a national infrastructure project. So that brings with it its own complexity of developing around railways and operational infrastructure, but also the complexities of working within government. And that is something that from the outside I had seen. Uh, Landsec had a land sale delivery partner relationship with the Defence Infrastructure Organisation. And you can see the assets that government holds uh, are amazing and that could be unlocked. So when the opportunity came to, to start and then build and develop 
the property development business within High Speed 2, everything aligned. And uh, my goodness, it, it's, it's, it's a journey. It was a, a first three years of building the team, building the capability, building the culture, and then, if you like, building the business through from identifying the sites, getting planning consent, bringing on development partners uh, at Euston to help bring that forward. And we were setting the rules and we were using uh, the, the might and the support of government and ministers to, to drive this agenda forward. And it's exceedingly powerful when you have government and you have government's assets and funding and powers coming together with an agenda to deliver tangible financial returns and economic uh, benefits. It's, it's incredibly potent. And so High Speed 2 is a bringing together all of that. And I found it completely irresistible um, and, and had a you know, really fantastic time building up that team uh, of people from, from, from all walks of, of real estate. Now, anyone listening you know, inevitably will, will hear that sort of passion and enthusiasm you've, you've got for this. But I, maybe this is the, sort of the, the, my own sceptical nature here. So feel free to, uh, to correct me. But this is a, for all the, all the good stuff about the opportunity, this is a government role associated with infrastructure and those two combined have a have a pretty patchy sort of reputation don't they or sort of track record what were your peers saying to you when they heard you you were leaving sort of the 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 premier central london commercial developer and joining hs2 i but i the ones who were who were nice to have to say to me i think a lot of them were confused i i was really clear what i wanted and as I said, in that sort of year before I left Lansing, there were, there were certain things that had become clear to me that I wanted to explore. And so my own sort of internal narrative and therefore my external narrative was really clear. This is why I'm doing this. I want to explore working in these environments. But when people got a sense of the opportunity, I mean, I'm exceedingly lucky that I am, uh, or I was then, I was running a portfolio. I was running a five billion pound portfolio uh, of land with a mandate to go and deliver, with government support and the funding to do it, uh, it was extremely powerful. And I think when people got a, really sort of understood what the, what the real estate was that I was getting to play with, they got a real sense of why I'm doing it. Because ultimately, if, if we're into real estate and we're real estate professionals, it has to be the real estate, it has to be that product that, that drives, us to, to drives us to deliver. And the opportunities in this job are outstanding to be delivering 10 million square foot in central London, to be delivering 10 million square foot in central Manchester, to have the opportunities when we get there to deliver three to five million square foot in Leeds. You know, these are these are opportunities that if we got one of them in our career, we'd be pretty chuffed with ourselves. But you know, we have eight stations and three of them have got uh, have got that sort of scale of development in. It, it, it's enormous. So. I, I think when, when, when my friends and colleagues saw what I was doing, there was, a, there was an understanding. But it's a lot to leave. For a lot, for a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, to leave a, a, a FTSE-listed property company like Lansac is, is a bold move. But I, I, no doubt it was a leap of faith moment. It was a fork in the road, however you want to describe it. But it was, but it was definitely the right one for me. Uh, we talked a bit about sort of a leadership sort of style, what you, need, what you did in order to, to inspire those teams within a business like Lansac. Were you able to take the same management style, same tools, and deliver those in the same way at HS2? 
to a large degree, yes. And for my Landsec colleagues who looked at the way that I structured the development business at at high speed too, they'd see a lot of a lot of similarities. Fundamentally, uh, it was about empowerment to deliver some really fantastic and high quality product. It's a really exciting places. I mean, it's incredibly challenging uh, delivering real estate next to railway infrastructure, but the opportunities are absolutely immense. And that's what inspired people. You know, we were, we were battling a headwind when we were building the team and inspiring people. We are battling the headwind that you mentioned, which is High Speed 2 Limited is a company that's wholly owned by government and always oh, isn't government difficult, isn't government tricky. And yes, it is. And you have to hone your skills to working with government officials and ministers to enable them to support you and give you what you need. But in many ways, it's no different to working with a board of directors in, 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 a, in, a, in a company. You have to explain yourself and be able to justify yourself to justify an investment. So the headwind was attracting talent into a, a public sector organisation. But when we were able to uh, pitch to show a vision of what we were trying to achieve, we found that actually that was inspiring that we attracted people from the private sector and other parts of the public sector to come and work with us. Well, you're not obviously not uh, the guys listening so far will know you're not one to sort of to sit still for very, very long. And sort of despite all these sort of challenges and the opportunities within sort of uh, HS2 and sort of that, that role of sort of leading the commercial development, something did come along that sort of pricked your interest, didn't it? Well, High Speed 2, I believe, is a very special project uh, and I, I sort of believe in it. And I also I believe in it because it, it connects people and I've, you know, I've read my crib sheet. But I also believe in it because it's it's turning the property uh, market upside down, connecting cities. And it's, it's having a major effect in Birmingham right now. And it's having a major effect in London. And uh, what I think you're, you're, you're leading me to is so in London, government will own 60 acres uh, on and around Euston. And it presents a unique opportunity along High Speed 2. And we think in, in across our country to have a government led city creating regeneration project so we're creating a new piece of city so for those of you who live and work in london euston has been an opportunity area in the london plan since there has been a london plan and other schemes great schemes like king's cross have sort of come and and been established there's an opportunity to create uh, a 10 million square foot odd development as well as two new stations well, one new brand new station and one redeveloped station so the opportunity, Euston is where all this infrastructure, national infrastructure with High Speed 2 and the West Coast mainline that remains, uh, I think, one of our most important pieces of rail infrastructure and all uh, and the local network all come together. It will be, I believe, the best connected place in the country. And so it's the perfect platform. Now, government recognised that uh, through the Oakview Review of High Speed 2, that if you're going to do Euston, if you're going to unlock this multiple billion pound development, you need to bring the railway infrastructure and the property together. And, and I think that's absolutely right. They, come, they, are, they are symbiotic, they are interdependent, and they have to come forward together. So we appointed our development partner in Lendlease to support us in delivering that. And, and the role I'm doing now is, is to create a true partnership between High Speed 2, Network Rail, the Department for Transport, the local authority, to get this development away. And the complexities, the constraints are of a scale that I've never experienced before. The complexity of challenges around us, not just on our site, we're surrounded by some of the most deprived parts of our country in, in this, part of, this part of London, 
social deprivation that this can really address. So the opportunities to do something really life-changing for tens of thousands of people, as well as creating sort of a, a great new and shiny development, is enormous. So, so the government acknowledged that there needs to be a sort of particularly special focus, and, and I'm I'm really grateful that the government recognised that having somebody with a real estate rather than a rail infrastructure background to to steward that uh, would mean that real estate takes a really important role. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 18 months is to build this organisation, uh, bring in support from across local and regional and national government to do it and steward our development partner then lease it in, uh, towards a planning application uh, to get this uh, to get this job away. Now, listening to what um, to what you described then, and and like I say, you tell you tell a very very good story, Tom, about all about the opportunities. What's the what's the threat? What's you know what's the what's the big risks here to you, you and your career? A very acute when I when I joined High Speed Two, and it's been amplified at at Euston, is that in order to enable real estate development, I have to devote a lot of myself to the enabling bit which tends to be focused on the rail infrastructure to enable the development. Now, my job at the moment is very much enabling the railway infrastructure as well as enabling the development. The personal risks to me is this takes me further away from real estate and it takes me closer to infrastructure and uh, and also sort of it takes me away from sort of transactions. But I think as the development progresses and we go into outline planning discussions with, with the local authority, that that will come back. But this is a this is a leap of faith to me. I'm in, I'm engaged with projects of a scale uh, that I've previously not experienced and a complexity. But it it the risk to me is I suppose to answer your question is the move away from real estate uh, as a hundred percent focus. So Tom, I hate to I hate to say because I am really enjoying the conversation, but we are sort of rapidly heading towards you know the time we need to wrap up the uh, um, uh, the episode. So. What I want to be able to do really is sort of, is just to understand a bit more about sort of what's maybe next for you. What if, you know, you're, you're someone who's clearly sort of full of ambition, who loves a challenge. What's, what's next on the horizon for you? Well, I'm not one of these people, Nick, who has a five-year career plan and perhaps I would be doing different things if I did. But I've always lived with the mantra is if you're really good at what you do, it'll lead you to your, to your next, your next opportunity. And at Euston, we are, I'm about to learn about taking a 10 million square foot scheme through outline planning. And so, so solidifying what I'm doing, building the team, going through, uh, we've, now we're funded to go through delivery and into planning and actually into construction for two railway stations, I think is, is a massive learning curve for me that, that finds it exciting. I think longer term, I see a huge value in the lessons that I've learned about delivering real estate around uh, complicated infrastructure. I think development in the UK, we're a small island. We are, it is going to only become more difficult. The availability of brownfield sites or greenfield sites that are ready to go is fewer and far between. And we're going to, developers are going to have to get better at working closer to infrastructure and making the best of the land that perhaps even our, our local, regional and national government owns. So looking to the future, I am very much banking the learning that I'm that I'm making at the moment. And I I hope and expect that there will be opportunities to use that learning uh, back in a real estate setting when the, when the time is right. 
Now, the next question I want um, I want to understand a bit more about sort of what the maybe the influence of sort of the the last sort of five years of your career has, has had on your way of thinking. As your measure of success changed from maybe the, you know, the first part of your career, sort of 19 years in sort of, uh, sort of cutthroat sort of commercial d- development versus the last sort of five years, whereby it has been had a, a, a public sector sort of uh, wrapper to it? Oh, absolutely, w- without doubt. I think what this is, what, what particularly in the last five years, what I've learned is uh, the value or the, to, the, the benefits of social value. Uh, of economic value as well as pure financial value. So it's not just about the money you make, it's about the life the life changes that you can deliver, the jobs that you create. And those really aren't just numbers on a page. Uh, to, to meet people f- who will actually work on the site and this will be transformative for their life is really empowering. So I think um, my own measure of success of the, of the work that I do is no longer sort of quite, quite sort of myopic. It's, it's there's lots of different measures and I'm particularly focused on social impact and social value and environmental impact and environmental value. I certainly think this five years has shaped the way that I communicate and the way that I engage with people. And I think I was very much a property person talking in a property language in a property way. And I've learned that actually you can you can open up so many doors if you understand that that a lot of people, property is uh, property language is a foreign language, um, and real estate is a dark art. And if we if if we if we understand that and we respond to it, and understand what drives other people and what they want to get out of their real estate, then there's a whole lot to learn and a whole lot more to achieve. Well, I think that's a, a really important sort of lesson for everyone sort of listening, isn't it? About sort of the uh, what our priorities are within within our industry. So. Tom, thank you very much for spending the time um, uh, with me this evening. And I've really enjoyed the story and I'm no doubt everyone else listening to this uh, will have too. So uh, once more, Tom, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Nick. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast. And we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.